0: Uh, We've been coming through Romans chapter, really, uh, 9, 10, and 11, and we've seen how important it is that that, uh, anything that God devotes three chapters to in the Bible, you better look at as far as uh, some really great potential to it to see how how God is dealing with His chosen people. And I want to read for you Romans chapter 11. Let's pick it up in verse 16, and it says this, For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and now being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I may be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear." if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare thee not. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you again for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the events already today. We thank you, Father, for Roy and his great song. And, oh, Lord, I always look for the person that sings before I preach to pave the way and prepare the hearts. And, Lord, uh, I, I thank you for that today. And I thank you for Andrea, Lord. I, I thank you for again for her faithfulness and and uh, Lord, we'll miss her, but Lord, uh, we know that uh, you're going to do in her life what uh, you have for her to do. And we will continue to pray for her and uh, wish her all the luck and the success in the world. And Lord, I pray now as we turn our attention to the Bible that you'll give us those things. Help us to learn the book of Romans. Lord, there's no other book in the world uh, for you and us as Christians that we need to understand as far as our own relationship with God more than the book of Romans. And Lord, we painstakingly, verse by verse, laid this out as we've come through, that these folks may be able to get a, a running commentary in their Bible of this great book. And help us yet today, Father, to take this passage and to open it up, help me to make it clear, help them to leave today understanding this passage better, uh, Lord, than they already do. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, when we come to this passage, as I said, yet again, we see another aspect of how God views the nation of Israel in contrast to where we're at. And that's a lot of what Paul's doing in the book of Romans. He's contrasting uh, God's dealing with the nation of Israel, and then putting it into a perspective so we as the church, by contrast, can understand it. And uh, what we're doing here in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, and we've talked about this almost every week, is taking a biblical study of the nation of Israel. Probably no other place in the Bible that you can get more of a concentrated, uh, intense study of the Bible. You know, I work with many of you in, in learning your Bible, and my week is filled with people who come over and, and we, we talk about the Bible, and we, many of you are in programs uh, coming through the Bible. And uh, you know as well as I do that there's many ways to study the Bible. In my own personal life, I have never just stayed with one way of studying the Bible. Uh, I'm the kind of guy that, uh, you know, I've got I to gotta move it around. I've got to be able to come at things from a different angle. But I've learned that, uh, you know, I never do the same uh, way, study the same way twice, uh, or all the time, anyhow. And I know that, there's, that you can study the Bible by taking a book and setting the context of that book. And basically, that's what we've done in Institute, you know. Uh, we laid out three basic books, which are the key books, Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. And we've left no stone unturned in those. And we're in Hebrews right now. So you can study books of the Bible. Uh, you can study chapters of the Bible. Chapters within each book obviously hold some tremendous uh, material, and you can go at it that way. I think one of the greatest studies of a way to study the Bible, and, and, and I encourage everybody to do this at some point in your life, is character studies. Characters being individuals, taking a man in the Bible or a woman in the Bible. Uh, there was a guy; I, I think he's probably dead now, but uh, he wrote a series of books that I think are, are, are probably some of the greatest reference study helps that you'll ever find. His name was Herbert Lockyer. We don't, I don't think we have his books back there at this point in time, but we probably need to get some of them. He did a whole series, and he, his books were called the All Series. And in one book, it was, uh, it was All the Women in the Bible. And he went through and characterized every woman in the Bible and gave you a short paragraph, told you where she was, who she was, where she's from. Uh, there was another one, uh, All the Men in the Bible. There was even one, All the Children in the Bible. Then he did one, All the Kings and the Queens in the Bible. Then he did one, All of the Holy Days in the Bible, uh, and uh, they were incredible books. Because what it, what it allowed somebody to do is be able to take a subject, and this is what I want to talk about today in How to Study the Bible. Uh, we can talk about all kinds of different ways, but, but taking a subject of the Bible and breaking it down in its, in its pieces, basically isolating it from the rest of the Bible and then studying that section helps you to get it into a better perspective. So when you put it all back together in the Bible, you have a better understanding of how it all works. And I want to show you a great example of that today uh, out of Romans chapter 11. I not, I not only want this to be informative for you as far as being able to put this uh, in your running commentary on Romans, but I want you to see a model here of a great way to study uh, your Bible. And I call it isolation. Isolation. I call it taking a, a particular subject out of the Bible, completely removing it from all the other Bible, and then just focusing on that piece and really getting it down and learning it well. And uh, at some point in your life, you're going to have to do that with most every subject in the Bible. Uh, and I found that uh, that's my way of uh, really my way of approach in teaching the Bible. A number of years ago, I did a biblical study of Satan. And I realized that uh, there was more written in the Bible about the devil than any other man in the Bible outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I did a biblical study of of Satan. And when I did that, I I was immediately faced with all of the material. And the thing we have to deal with is, how do I organize that material? And yet I found a very simple, systematic way, uh, and and I use it in in the concept of, of isolation. I looked at, and I looked at the devil and I looked at all that he did in the Bible, and I found out basically that the basic fundamental, lowest common denominator aspect of the devil was simply this: throughout your Bible, from Genesis to revelation, the devil's kicked out of heaven three times now that 's very significant because I, everything about the devil then can be put into those three categories. So I, I, I broke down a biblical study of Satan based on the three places in the Bible that he's kicked out of heaven. In one place, he's kicked out positionally. In another place, he's kicked out bodily. In another place, he's kicked out eternally. Okay? Now, what I just did is took a massive subject in the Bible, and I broke it down into three basic sessions. You know what I did? I isolated that study. And then I broke that study down into three concepts, studied each concept thoroughly, and then what did I do? Lifted it back up, put it back into my Bible, and now I understood the perspective in a better way. I did this, uh, uh, it was last week or the week before last, when I talked about the rapture, the concept of the rapture. Now there's there's another case. What did I do? I broke the rapture down into three aspects, the Old Testament saints, the church age, and the tribulation saints. That's taking a subject and isolating it. Uh, I I think another great study is the study of the the Twelve Apostles. And I'm just talking about things that I've done here. I mean, there's hundreds of them today. I'm trying to set the stage for where we're going to go here in Romans 11. Uh, The Twelve Apostles are an incredible study. And uh, every pastor ought to understand the concept, at least from an inspirational application, of the Twelve Apostles. How do you break those down? Well, they represent, the Twelve Apostles really represent what you have in any church. In fact, they are a church. They're they're a called-out assembly. They're not empowered with the Holy Spirit of God. But there's, don't get deceived, there's four or five different churches in the Bible that you've got to understand what a church means. It means called out. And those 12 are called out. And yes, it's before the empowering of the church, the spiritual body, but they are called out. Abraham's a church. He's called out but he's not the same kind of church that you and I are. See? Now, when he call, but it's a model. When he calls out those 12, what do you have? You have one that's a phony. You know what that tells me? That every church, every church you're going to have, you're going to have people who say they're Christians, but are probably not. And then you have three who are basically found every time some great event takes place. And we know who those are, don't we? Peter, James, and John. And that shows me that out of any church the majority of the work's going to get done by the minority. So you have everything laying itself out. You have one, uh, you have 12 of them. One's a phony, three get it, and the rest are along for the ride, you see. And then within that 12, you have one who goes all the way. And that's a model. You isolate that. You study it. You look at it. And you find where you're at in your own personal life. I think another great study is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle probably, I ain't kidding you, uh, if, if you want a good book on the tabernacle, get Arthur W. Pink's uh, on Gleaning in Exodus. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. And yet at that, it's, it'll overwhelm you. There's so much material in it. But when I studied the tabernacle, you know what I did? I isolated it. I took the tabernacle and I broke it down. I pulled it out of the Bible and I broke it down into three sections. The tabernacle has an outer section. It has an inner section. And then it has what we know as the Holy of Holies. And you, you study it and you break it down. And then you learn about it. And then you, you put, it back, put it back into your Bible. And the whole thing makes sense. Now, you talk about you want to study a God? Alright. In the Old Testament, there's 14 titles of God. You want to study God? Isolate Him in the Old Testament. Take those 14 titles that He has. And those titles comes in three forms. Some of them are what we call primary names. That'll be the ones that talk about God as Lord, or God in the uppercase letters. You'll find some that are compounds with the Hebrew name. Uh, That'll be the ones that have L in front of them, like El Shaddai, you know, and and those names. And then you'll find some that are compounds with what we call the Tetragrammaton. And that'll be the ones that are connected with Jehovah. They'll be the ones that are connected with, uh, uh, in that sense. And so, The way to learn your Bible, or one of the great ways to learn your Bible, is to be able to isolate subjects, bring it together, and and take it apart, look at all the pieces, identify all the pieces, and then put the pieces back together and put them into your Bible. Now, most people uh, won't do that. And the reason why most people won't do that in, in its very basic form is most people are not disciplined enough to do that. Uh, one of the things that you got to deal with with young Christians, and Christians, young Christians have a zeal, but it's not always according to knowledge. And uh, one of the things that you got to deal with with young Christians is kind of keeping a keeping a hammer on them, so they 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 don't get way out in left field when it's when it when it comes to the Bible. In other words, they wanna they wanna. All of us have one desire, and that is the fact that we want to learn the Bible today. Okay. And young Christians who get on fire for God, they have that burning passion, and they want to learn it all today. And unfortunately, uh, you don't learn it all today. When I was working in the secular world a while back, I had to get a chauffeur's license. And, uh, and, I, and where I, they were training us where we were, and they said, uh, now, by, this is Friday, and we're going to uh, we're gonna let you off at noon today, and uh, you need to show up Monday with a chauffeur's license. Well, I didn't even know what a chauffeur's license was, you know, and they said you have to go to, the, you have to take a test, and they actually passed out the uh, the the material, and uh, I I so I said, well, I'm going to get this thing done right now, so I'm driving to the motor vehicle place studying my my paper, and I got there and I went in there and I said I want to take my chauffeur's license test, you know, and so what happened was that they gave me the test and uh, I flunked it the first time. And she said, uh, well, you had this one wrong, this one wrong, this one wrong, and this one wrong. And uh, so uh, you go ahead and take it again right now. Well, she just told me what I did wrong and told me the answer. So I went back in, and I got my chauffeur license just like that. In, in less than a day, I, I, in an hour, I had studied the thing, got it down, didn't quite make it the first time, got a second shot, made it. I went out of there pretty proud that here I am. I took that book, didn't even know what it was two hours ago. Now I studied the book, memorized the stuff, went in and took the test, and I got it. And I felt pretty proud of myself. But you know what? You can do that with a chauffeur's license, but you'll never do that with that Bible. Never will. Never will. And you know, people many times, learning your Bible, you have to do it one piece at a time. And then as you put it back together, and it takes a while. But it's the only real way to get it done, and most young Christians try to learn way too much, way too fast, and then they don't get anything done right. Do you ever try to do ten different things at one time? No, I, 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 don't, I don't, I, I, I don't particularly like Obama, Obama, Obama or uh, I don't particularly care for the president. But I have nothing personal against him. His views on life aren't my views on life, and this is not a slam to him. I mean, uh, but the bottom line is this: you know why? Now, you got to remember. He's probably one of the youngest presidents we've ever had. And he also, he's probably one of the least experienced presidents we ever had. But the only thing his claim to fame is, I mean, you take guys like Reagan. I mean, what was his claim to fame? Well, anybody 20 years on Death Valley Days on TV had to be a good president. I mean, I mean that's all there is to it. Uh, but they had experience. I remember when John F. Kennedy became president of the United States. Everybody, he was at that time the youngest president we ever had. And everybody said the same thing, that he had absolutely no experience. And he turned out, I mean, obviously he got his life shut, cut short, but he turned out being a pretty good president. And uh, ex- being the president of the United States takes a tremendous lot of experience. I think Eisenhower made a good president simply because of the fact that he was a four-star general, been through World War II, he understood organizational skills, he had a great grasp of the world, and you can't be a four-star general and try to hold all the allies together without being somewhat political. So he had a good foundation. Barack Obama's problem is he has no experience. I mean, he was a community organizer. What is that? That means on Friday night you get a bunch of people together and make sure the pizzas get there at 8 o'clock. I mean, that's, that's where you're at with it, see? You know what his problem is? And I don't have anything personal against him, but you know what his problem is? He's so young, human experience, and now he's trying to get 20 major things going at the same time. He's trying to fight the war in Iraq, the war in Iran, uh, uh, a uh, deal with Iran, he's doing with North Korea, he's trying to solve the health care problems, he's trying to do all of these things that a normal president would look at and say, you can't do that that fast and that quickly. Because you know what? It's the same way with you and me. When you do a lot of things that are complicated things, you know what you wind up? You wind up not doing any of them well. But if you take them one at a time, focus on it one piece at a time. But you see, it takes discipline to do that. It takes putting down your desires of wanting to grasp it all and thinking you can. Nobody can do that. If you notice, when we come through our Bible basics class, that's one of the things that we did. We took it <coughs> and broke it apart in pieces. Now, I said all that to say this. In Romans chapter 11, <coughs> verses 16 through 21, what we just read, we have another aspect of the nation of Israel and to learn it. And if you notice... Uh, over the times, if you've been coming to Thursday night Bible study, or even on Sunday mornings, uh, we have shown you that there are many, many different ways to study the nation of Israel. And here's a case where the nation of Israel is connected to an olive tree. And we see now another way to study the nation of Israel. And this is a very good example today of what I'm talking about in an isolated study. So we're going to do a couple of things today. One, we're going to learn this section so you can get it into your Bibles. Two, I'm going to use this to give you an incredible example of what it means or how you do an isolated study in the Bible uh, at breaking the pieces down. You uh, heard me say many, many times, and it's in my book on how to study the Bible, that uh, a way to learn your Bible is by association and uh, you look at things that associate with other things, and uh, many times there'll be, a, there'll be an incredible picture of, of what God wants you to see, and understanding what you have there really comes out. Uh, for instance, I'll give you a quick example, and you've heard me say this many, many times. At the first coming of Christ, you have four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've heard me say this before, but allow me to use it in a, in a reference so we can put it in a context. At the first coming of Christ, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anybody who's read your Bible through, or at least read the New Testament, you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't line up exactly. You might read an account here, and it talks about one person. Then you might read the exact same account in another gospel, and it tells you there's two persons. And then you may read another account and find out that there's three people. You may read one thing and find out there's an account here, and then you read the next one, and it's not even found in that book. Now, that's led people to believe who don't believe the Bible, and they're their basis is, is education and trying to find fault with the Bible. That's led a lot of people to, to believe that the uh, Gospels uh, are really, uh, uh, what well, they have a big word for it. It's called synoptic. And that has led people to believe that the Gospels uh, were written uh, at different times and uh, they don't all match up. The truth of the matter is when you understand how God does things in the Bible, the four Gospels uh, give you uh, four different aspects of the same event And he puts a different emphasis every time he comes through one of those gospel books. And, of course, the main event is the first coming of Christ. So in one book, you see the first coming of Christ this way. In the other book, he puts the emphasis on another aspect. And my my, my point is this. You've got to see those four books take all four sections... And then you've got to blend them together to get the whole account of what's taking place. You can't rely on just one of the Gospels to understand the complete first coming of Christ. You've got to get all four of them together. But you've got to isolate them first, see why it's saying what it's saying, then put them all together. Obviously, tribulation period's the same way. The Bible talks about the fact that uh, uh, at the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation, just like God gave you four counts of the first coming of Christ, from Revelation chapter 5 to Revelation chapter 19, you get four counts of the second coming of Christ. And it's the same thing. Each one of them focuses on, in the breakdown, I've given it to you many times in Revelation, that each one of them focuses on a different aspect of the second coming from a different angle. And you can't, and here again, many people make the mistake uh, of thinking that that section of the Bible, uh, it, well, tribulation, is just happening one after the other, and that's not the case. The Bible is consistent, where God gave you four different aspects of the first coming of Christ, He's going to give you four different aspects of a second coming of Christ. The way you learn it is to isolate those four things, and then you put it back together. Now, learning by isolation... We're talking about the nation of Israel. Have you ever counted, and I'm just going to give you the major ones. Have you ever counted how many different ways you study the nation of Israel? Somebody says, Bob, what can I do to really understand the nation of Israel in all aspects? Well, just like to understand the first coming of Christ, there's four accounts. Just like to understand the second coming of Christ, there's four accounts. Then if you're going to understand Israel, and this is true of any subject, If you're going to understand the nation of Israel, then you're going to have to understand it in in all the different aspects by which God teaches you about the nation of Israel. For instance, you can study the nation of Israel as being God's son. All the way back in Exodus chapter 4, all the way back in Exodus, before they come out of Egypt, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, what did God say? He said, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, there's a place where Israel as a nation can be studied as God's son. You realize all the different ways, if I may just digress for a moment, you realize all the different ways you can study you as a Christian? You also are a son. And some of the greatest parallel material, inspirational material you'll ever get to understand about your own life is to look at Israel as God's son and then study the inspirational, practical lessons of that nation, and then apply them to you and me as God's Son. I'll tell you another one. The church is likened to a bride. I'll tell you another one. The church is likened to a virgin. I'll tell you another one. The church is likened to a servant. I'll tell you another one. The church is likened to a steward. I could go on and on and on. And you're going to find that if you want to learn any subject in the Bible, what you have to do is isolate that subject and then break that subject down into individual concepts that God shows you, different aspects of that particular subject. And when it comes to the nation of Israel, we can study Israel as God's son. You know why that's important? Because over there in Matthew, he makes a tremendous statement about the birth of Christ. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. He makes a tremendous statement. And, and maybe this is above most of you. I don't know. But you're going to find that when... Je- you ever remember Jesus' early life when Joseph and them, and they go down into Egypt? And then in Matthew chapter 2, I think it's verse 15, he says, out of, out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, up to that point, that was Israel as God's son. But now we see there's a parallel between the nation of Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ was a son of the nation of Israel. And it's a double application. And maybe that's over your head at this particular point, but that's okay. Uh, you, you need to understand that there's different aspects. And you for us to learn a subject in the Bible, like Israel, like in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, we have to see all these. Another one is, Israel's likened to God's wife, Book of Hosea. Here's what God says in that aspect. God says, you know what? I found me a wife out there in the the world, and that wife was Israel, and I betrothed her to me. I took her to me, and I did everything for her. I became her husband, and she became my wife, and I did everything for her that a husband should do for his wife. I did everything, and what did she do? She found other gods. She found other nations. And boy, the Bible is specific in those things. And she then, as a, as a wife to a husband, she, she left her first husband and committed adultery with uh, another husband and took another husband. And, and that's, that's the example that he uses. That's why many times this makes, makes the Old Testament make sense. Remember the book of Hosea? The book of Hosea, what is Hosea told to do? He's told to take a wife of whoredoms, isn't he? Now, you know, if you know anything about your Bible, you know that's a violation of the law. In other words, what I'm saying is, God just told him to violate his own scriptures? I mean, I can't imagine coming down and telling me, or you, to go get drunk. I mean, I know we like to, we like to, we like to, we like to find justification for what we do. I, I was telling somebody this week, I found a new parallel to, uh, uh, I found a new parallel to somebody wanting to rationalize what they're doing. And, I, and the only thing that, that you would not believe this story if I, didn't have, if I did not have five or six of you that were standing around hearing this story uh, when it was told to me. So if you know the story, please don't say who it was. It was nobody in our church. But it was a, it was a person that, that, like so many Christians, they, they claim to have a relationship with God, don't go to church anywhere. You know, and they claim to always have a communication with God, but I guarantee you it's always on their side. They don't ever spend any time in the Bible. Very nice person, but never get to the place where they ever, ever get into the Bible in any way, shape, or form in, in any scenario. No church, no Bible, no Bible study, but they want to think in their mind, and maybe they are, I don't know, that they're a Christian, and them and God have a relationship, but if they do, it's a relationship outside of church, outside of the Bible, and outside of the biblical principles. If that can happen, so this person is talking to us, and she he's talking about the fact that uh, that they had a major decision to make in life, and uh, they said, you know what, me and the, and this is their words, me and the me and the man were always close, and I never want to make any bad choices that I don't run by him. And she and he said, uh, so it was a situation where I had this major thing in my life, and I went ahead and made this decision, and I was really struggling in my heart because. It, this decision could, could backfire on me. And it was a crucial decision. And so uh, that person told me that, that I was just struggling. And I said to God, as I was driving through Lee Summit, I said to God, God, give me the answer and the peace of my heart that what I just did was okay and you're part of it. And that person said, and this is not, this isn't true. You were standing there. This is not true. That person said, you ain't going to believe it. I drove around the corner Behind the main aspect of, of Lee Summit, and you know where the Dairy Queen is, Bob?" And I said, "Yeah, I know exactly where the Dairy Queen is. We've ate there many, many times with a kid. And that person said to me, "You ain't going to believe this. Just as I spoke into my heart to God that I needed to have confirmed in my heart that the decision I made, there in front of me was a billboard that said, "It's all cool at Dairy Queen." <laughs> now you're laughing. You're laughing. That person was as serious as a heart attack. They thought that that billboard at the time in their life when they drove around that town with the thing they had to answer, they didn't see all is cool at Dairy Queen with our big treats. All they saw was it's all cool. And that from them was the confirmation in their heart that God, they had made the right decision. And now they had peace. Man, you could answer any problem you got in your heart if you just kept driving around town long enough. Lord, I'm thirsty. Lord, I need something to drink. I'm so thirsty. Big billboard. Try Schlitz Light. Thank you, Jesus. Where do you end with that? This is my point. You can make it say whatever you want to say, however you want to do it. Bottom line is, and this is why I hold you to the feet of the fire so many times about biblical principles. Ways to make decisions in your life that you have to make. You have to make. And of course, uh, again, we see that Israel is likened to God's wife. Uh, uh, Hosea was told to take a wife of Hordor because God had stepped out on Him and went after all the other gods. So we study that as as God's wife. Then we study the nation of Israel, and we talked about this last week, as the first fruits. And that's another way to study it. And in these lies, some of the greatest practical lessons you'll ever see. You'll see that God violated his own principles with, with Hosea. And the reason why he did is because Israel has thrown God's word right out the window and are doing whatever they want to do, just like the person who, and many of other God's people who make their decisions on life based on the visuals that they see instead of the principles of the word of God. And that was my connecting point. And, and we, when, we, when you understand that these things are in there, and God says, Israel has completely thrown out my word, so, you know what? As an object lesson, as an illustration, I'm going to have you break my law, take a wife of whoredoms, and when the leaders of Israel come up and say, how come you broke the law and you took a wife of whoredoms, you're going to say, because that's exactly what you did with God going after the other gods. You see how that works? Some great material in here. Now also, and this is where we're going to tie it into Romans chapter 11 today, and this is probably one of the greatest studies that you'll ever take uh, of of learning how to do this, but then also the material is uh, Israel. uh, uh, You're going to find that Israel in the Bible is likened to trees. Trees. Trees are one of the greatest studies you're ever going to take in the Bible. And it opens up so much other material and so much other truth that it's, it's hard to believe. The Old Testament to me, I like museums. I like going seeing things that have a lot of age to them, that are very old, that have character, that have stories behind them. I love history, and I love to walk back. and uh, The only way you can, you can't go back in time, but the only way you can go back in time in, in some respects is to go someplace that is still maintained the way it was uh, many, many years ago. And to me, the Old Testament is a lot like a museum that is filled with historical treasures. Uh, I, you know, I, if I had my, if I had, if somebody would say to me, you have one, I'll give you one month to do whatever you want to do and let you go through whatever you want to go through and just spend whatever time you want to do, whatever you want to do, where would you like to go? My, I wouldn't even have to think about it. It would be to Washington, D.C. and go through the uh, Smithsonian Institute, go through the Museum of Natural History, and I wouldn't want to necessarily see the stuff they got on display. I want to see the stuff that got down in the basement. I want to see the stuff that nobody ever gets to see. I want to see them alien bodies out of Area 51. No, I'm just kidding. I, 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 there wouldn't be there. They'd be at Wright-Patterson. But anyway, maybe we'll go there a second. We got four weeks. But anyway, I would just go through there, and I'd look at every piece. I, I, I just marveled at the Wright brothers' airplane. I would marvel at the spirit of St. Louis, the actual plane that Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic. I, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I want to go see the movie, and you got to go see it too, Amelia Earhart. Millie Earhart was one most people don't even know who she is. She and she was not unless she was from Kansas, and she was a lady that that uh, that disappeared over the Pacific. She had she was an aviator and she was a lady aviator and she was setting world records and she wanted to fly around the world. She had flown across the Atlantic. She had thrown across the United States, and now she was ready for the flight around the world. Somewhere over the Pacific in, what, 1939, 1938, someplace over there, uh, over by Howe Island, she just disappeared. All oh, the mysteries that surrounded her. I've heard stories, that, uh, and i and I followed the story. I've, 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 I've Things like that just, and, and, I mean, I can't just put, let it go. I mean, there were stories circulating around that, the, that the, she was on a secret mission uh, by the American government because of the Japanese buildup over there in the Pacific. And so she was really a spy plane and that she crashed, and the Japanese took her into internment. She died into captivity. There's places over there where they found uh, one guy did a whole study on it based on the technology we have today to find out where, uh, how she could have crashed and how much gas she had. Took the last radio transmission that they got from it, and actually plotted a course from it. He says she ran out of gas and died in the sea and, and drowned, the, you know, and all of those things. To me, those things are absolutely incredible. And I would walk through there. And I would just look at all that stuff, and I would say to myself, wow, you're living in the middle of history. To me, the mysteries of history have always intrigued me. I mean, what happened to Amelia Earhart? You know, I used to wonder about what happened to Glenn Miller. You know, they solved that mystery a couple of years ago, what happened to Glenn Miller. Remember him? He flew from England over to Europe to put a last show on, and then he disappeared And for, what, 40, 40, 50 years. And then they finally found out what happened to Glenn Miller. Incredible stuff. I I love things like that. To me, the Old Testament is just like that. It's like a museum where you walk from room to room and every door connects to another room. And the ability to learn your Bible is nothing more than understanding what it is, isolating the subjects like the room and then stopping and looking at everything in that room. Wow. And then moving on to the next room. Wow. When you leave at the end of the day, you've got a complete understanding of what's in that museum because you've seen the pieces Learning the Bible or try to learn the Bible without identifying the pieces, it, it just won't work. And Israel in the Bible is likened to trees. Now, Israel is likened to five trees at least in the Bible. And we're going to work our way back to the olive tree, but I want you to see this thing. Israel is likened to five trees in your Bible. And this is absolutely the key to understanding God's concept of the nation of Israel, and this is why God put it in and connected with the olive tree. Now, let me say this to you, and this is a piece of information you want to keep. Trees in the New Testament always represent people. When you want to find your genealogy, you can find your family tree, see? And in the Old Testament, trees, and this is the difference now, trees in the New Testament will always represent people. But trees in the Old Testament will always represent kings and nations. You want to remember that. Because those are two keys to unlocking the Scriptures. I think two of the premier places, and probably I would designate these as a definitive passage, is Ezekiel chapter 31 and Judges chapter 9. Now, I'm not going to get into those two passages today. That is certainly a Thursday night Bible study question. But the bottom line is this. You're told in those two passages that 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 it talks about seven trees. And you find four in Judges 9, and you find the rest of them in Ezekiel chapter 31. And it says in Judges 9 that there was a day. See, here's the key. And it's a, it's a very mysterious passage, and I love mysteries. When I see something in the Bible, that has got... Aurora of a smoke around it, I'm there, man. I want to solve that mystery. I maybe can't, but boy, I'm going to try to crack it. I'm going to take all my investigating skills that I've learned from the Bible and try to penetrate that mystery. And Judges 9 is a mysterious passage because it says there was the day when the trees went forth to anoint a king over them. Woo! That's spooky. If I'd have put that on the front of the verse in the front of my door last night, I wouldn't have had any Halloween. They'd have been scared to death to come up to my house. There was a day! When the trees went before, there's a place in the Bible that talks about the trees. When the Lord comes back, the trees clap their hands. I didn't know trees had hands. You guys better be careful being up in those deer stands in those trees if it's dark. What you got is Judges chapter 9, and it's incredible. It shows you that there's, it, bottom line, it says this. When you put the two passages together, you've got seven trees in the Garden of Eden. Seven trees. Now, you may have more, but you have seven trees in the Garden of Eden. In Judges chapter 9, there's four trees, and they're the four primary trees. And you know what you find? You find those same trees in Genesis with Adam and Eve, and then you, with, who's the, called the first Adam. And then you find those same four trees the second in, in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with a second Adam. And they are some keys, folks. There's some keys in there. I don't have time to get into all that this morning. But you've got four trees with a first Adam. You've got the same four trees with a second Adam. And Israel's likened to five trees in your Bible. And this is called isolating a subject, breaking it down, and then going back and putting the pieces together. Now, let's talk about it. Now, the first tree you're going to find? Israel likened to, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you put this much of it together. It's called a fir tree, F-I-R, fir. Fir in the sense of a pine tree, as you know it, or an evergreen. Hosea chapter 14, verse 8 says, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him, here it comes, I am like a green fir tree, from me is thy fruit found. Over here in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 19, you find it talking about different trees that God plants in the wilderness, and lo and behold, one of them is a fir tree. And the context will be the second coming of Christ in the millennium in that passage. Now, what are we going to do with that? All right, here's what you need to know. Every one of these trees is a different aspect by which you're going to study the nation of Israel. A fir tree represents Israel's ability to bear fruit. Now, you say, why a fir tree? Because it's an evergreen Evergreen bears fruit 24-7. There's no barren season to an evergreen. So when God called out the nation of Israel, one of the aspects that He had designated them as, as as a fir tree. Because a fir tree is a tree that that always ought to be uh, bearing fruit. It always should be green. And God's plan for Israel was for Israel never to be barren. So he chose a fir tree, we know it as an evergreen, hence it's forever green, see? And we chose, he chose a fir tree to represent Israel's fruitfulness. Now, here again, remember when we came through our Bible basics, and we basically built the Old Testament around the nation of Israel, didn't we? All the way up to the New Testament and the Acts. And, I, and what we did, without even telling you we did it, is we followed our study of isolation. We took Israel, and we broke Israel down. And if you want to study Israel uh, in aspect of its fruit bearing, you find five aspects, and it's the same five aspects that I've given you. You find the formulation, that'd be early Genesis. The calling out, that'd be uh, Exodus chapter 12, up through their 40 years. Uh, The establishment, that'd be 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Their demise, that's 606, when they all crashed together. And then the fifth aspect would be what we're studying right now in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, the restoration. Now, you see what I just did? I just took, what, 3,000 years, 4,000 years, 5,000 years, excuse me. I just took 5,000 years of history and broke it down in five increments. You study those increments, you come away saying, I got it. I got it. I understand now Israel. And then you do the same thing with every other thing in the Bible. But now, you can always begin to see, to get this done, you've got to watch off over and turn that boob tube off. You know what that takes? That takes discipline. Uh, you know what you got to do to do that? you got to set up. You can't do that. See, you can't do that driving your car. And I appreciate the people that like to listen to the Bible and listen to my sermons. Uh, uh, and you can learn a lot that way. But if you want to really learn your Bible, you've got to do it peacefully. And you've got to designate some time. And this gets tougher the older you get, the more kids you have, especially if they're little kids. Because they demand a lot of time. Uh, uh, but it, it, it's beside the point. I mean, life is life you've got to there's plenty of people in this church under the sound of my voice right now who have little kids who get it done, and somebody else says, "Why well, have little kids and can't get it done? Let me just tell you here, let me play a Johnny Carson here's the question I 'll give you the answer. Why can't I get it done? Johnny says, self-discipline, structure, disciplining your life. Does your kids run your life or do you run your life? Bad question I'm sorry, I even asked that. <laughs> You have to find time in your life to be alone with God. You have to. And if you don't do it, you ain't going to make it. You don't get saved and then just do whatever you want to do and think that the devil, maybe there was, and I don't even know if this is true, maybe there was a day 80, 100 years ago when you could do that and survive, but you certainly can't today. There's too many pressures out there. There's too many pressures. And it's a thing where you have got to understand that you have to be able to break that time down. So it's like into a fir tree. And obviously, the inspirational application is for Christians. You and me as Christians, we we ought to be bearing fruit all the time. What did Paul say over there in Timothy? He said, preach the Word. What did he say? In season, out of season. Now, we all have bad days. I have bad days. But you know, there's nothing that will pull you out of a bad day faster than saying something to somebody about God or doing something for God when you really don't want to. I mean, there's just something about that because the Holy Spirit of God... Do you realize that in in Christ's presence, in the gospel, in Christ's presence, nobody ever stayed dead? Nobody. You realize in His presence, nobody ever stayed sick in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Because the, presence, the very presence of God demands healing. The very presence of God <laughs> demands life. Over oh, in John chapter 11, when he raised Lazarus, do you know why he said, Lazarus, come forth? If he have just said, come forth, everybody in the graveyard would have come forth. He limited it to what he wanted to do. But in His presence, there's no death and there's no sickness. Now, maybe you've never identified with this, but I have. I don't believe in healing in the sense of the apostolic goofball stuff that goes on in most charismatic churches. But I do believe the Holy Spirit of God heals. No Question about it. I have been healed. My healings have been temporary. There's been times on Thursday night or even Sunday morning, but I've been really sick. And I hadn't felt good. There's times that I had a head cold that I felt like my head was in a block of ice. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't hear. I couldn't smell anything. My throat was sore. I couldn't talk. And yet, you know, I'm going to say to myself, you know, it takes a lot for me not to go to the Bible. And one of the reasons is is because, and this is honest, honest this is true, when I step into that pulpit, whether it's Thursday night or whenever... Even when some of you come over, there's times that I haven't felt good, but you never know it because I have an obligation. But I'm telling you this, when I open up that Bible and start to teach, for the moment and the time that I'm teaching, I'm better. I'm better. My head clears up. My ears clear up. You know why? I'm telling you why. Because when you get filled with the Holy Spirit of God to do the job that God calls you to do, it kind of goes back to that thing that there's no sickness and there's no death. Now, in the church age, it doesn't work like it did there, and as soon as you're done, you feel terrible again by the time you get home. And obviously, the thing to do is just keep teaching the Bible till you feel better. You know, it, 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 but, but I'm just saying, the Holy Spirit of God, we ought to bear fruit no matter what spiritual condition we're in. He said in season, out of season, when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. That's the practical side of it. You remember that story I told you over there uh, in that great parable in Matthew chapter 21? And it talked about how God called out Israel, did everything. And then it says this in verse 34. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, leaders of Israel, and, 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 and says, where's the fruit? Where is your fruit? You're supposed to be a fir tree. You're not supposed to be off your fruit game. You're supposed to be always bearing fruit. An evergreen Great study. Great study. Now the next tree we need to be familiar with, and we should be pretty well clear up on this one because we were through this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And that's Israel as a fig tree. Remember that in Matthew chapter 24 verse 32 through 35, where he said, Now learn the parable of the fig tree, for when his branches is yet tender, and he put forth leaves, know ye that is, uh, at, at near, at, uh, summer is nigh, and near even at the door. And this is, this now a fig tree in the Bible Israel as a fig tree, or a fig tree in the Bible, always represents self-righteousness. Remember Adam and Eve? They were in fellowship with God, and they were doing everything with God, and then one day they fell. And where they were excited to see God, now they weren't excited to see Where they ran to God, now they run from God. Ever been there? And what does the Bible say they do? Now they know that they're naked. And now what they did was that they went and got fig leaves and sewed them together to cover their nakedness. God comes down and he says, what is that? Get them off. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that he went out and killed something innocent and made them coverings of skin. First place in your Bible where something innocent died by the shedding of blood to come by somebody's nakedness. You know why? Because fig leaves won't cut it. Fig leaves won't cut it. So you have Jeremiah chapter 24. He says, And again, the word of, God, the, word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the, Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place, into the land of the Chaldeans for their good. I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down, and I will plant them, and I will pick uh, not pick them up. And I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and shall return unto me their whole heart. All right, God there from verse 4 down to verse 7, He's talking about what He's going to do with Israel in the future when they become a good fig tree. Ah, but look at verse 8. Back to the reality. And as the, here it comes, evil figs. That's Israel now, then, which cannot be eaten. They are so evil, surely thus saith the Lord, I will give them Zedekiah. Who's Zedekiah? He's the last king that Israel ever has. Remember Zedekiah? The last king that, that uh, when, uh, when Babylon comes down, Nebuchadnezzar puts up a puppet king, so he'll kind of keep Israel in control, and it's Zedekiah. And what does Zedekiah do? Zedekiah tries to lead a revolt against Nebuchadnezzar. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He comes down and he puts him in chains. He stands him there. He kills his sons right in front of him. And then he takes two hot pokers and puts his eyes out. He says, I'll take Zedekiah. Zedekiah is representing the bad figs here. So I will give Zedekiah the king of Judah and his princes and the residue of Jerusalem that remain in this land, and they shall dwell in Egypt. And He gives them, and that starts the captivity, when they go into the captivity. Oh, there's great parallels. And we we saw this. Mark chapter 11, verse 13, the New Testament. It says, on the morrow, Jesus now, when they were come from Bethany, He was hungry, Jesus. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, He came, if happily he might find anything thereon. He's looking for fruit. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the figs was not yet. Hear that thing? Now, I love this. This is what I love about the Bible. Look at verse 12 and 13 again. You want to see Israel's condition? This whole story right here is a picture of Israel who are now in their self-righteous mode. And look what he says. And you know what? I've learned something. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself or it doesn't matter what I say about myself. It doesn't matter how I pretend I'm right with God when I'm not any more than it matters if you pretend with right with God when you're not. All that really matters is what God says. And I love passages like this because Israel's in their self-righteous mode. And You know how we get in our self-righteous mode? Well, Israel's in that self-righteous mode. And they're pretending they're right. They're pretending they're spiritual. They're pretending they're everything But look what God said. I love it. I love it. Right between the lines, he puts it. Look at verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree, type of the nation of Israel, afar off. You know where Israel is with God right there in that passage? They're afar off. You see, everything in the Bible, you think it's just coincidence that he saw it afar off and said it's afar off? Once you understand that fig tree is a picture of Israel and her self-righteousness, everything makes sense. And he came out and he simply said, I see this fig tree afar off because bottom line is, Israel's that fig tree and they're afar off from where I'm at. Incredible stuff in there. Absolutely incredible. And then he says, for the time of the figs was not yet, the time of the figs was not yet. Now, let me put this in a biblical order for you. He says in Matthew chapter 24, studying Israel as a fig tree. I'm going to give you this one. It's real easy, but boy, it's quite profound. He said in verse 32, Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. And then he goes on and he says, And when you see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. And uh, that door is an incredible study out of John chapter 10. We don't have time to get into this morning, but here's what you got. You got going back to Jeremiah chapter 24, you got Israel in the Old Testament, and they're now producing bad figs. Zedekiah is their last king. And the figs, the fruit they're put out here is bad fruit. Now that's another great practical application. Well, I don't even have time to get on all of these. If you're saved here this morning, or you're an un- uh, if you're saved here this morning, you put out good fruit just like you put out bad fruit. Everybody puts out fruit. When you're right with God and on fire with God, hitting all eight cylinders, you put out good fruit. When you're not hitting on all eight cylinders, you're not right with God, you produce bad fruit. That's Israel. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, or just like in the Old Testament, they put out bad figs that nobody could eat, but when God comes back, they're going to put out good figs. That's where we're at. Boy, you could develop that. What a sermon that would be. But in Jeremiah chapter 24, they got bad figs under King Zedekiah. What happens? He put Zedekiah, he put Zedekiah, uh, eyes out, and turned him over to Babylon in 606 B.C. or thereabouts. And now uh, the context will be the next 400 years where Israel is absolutely barren. No fruit whatsoever. Now here's the timeline, and you want to see this. This is an isolated study of Israel's restor- restoration. And you've got to put the timeline together. Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 4 through 7, bad figs. From 606 B.C. up to the first coming of Christ, he's absolutely barren. In Mark chapter 11, verse 13, the first coming of Christ. Christ comes over, and he looks at that fig tree. And at the first coming of Christ, he says, you know what? It's not time for the figs yet. No figs on it. Then in Matthew chapter 24, he gives a prophecy. And a prophecy isn't about the first coming of Christ, because he knows now that that Israel's not going to get restored now. The prophecy's down the line in Matthew chapter 24, and it's talking about the second coming of Christ. And it's talking about the time of 1918 to 1948, that God is going to gather them back, bring them back, put them in the land, and that generation is going to see the budding of the fig tree when it put forth its leaves. That'll be 1918, 1948. Moving on through our timeline, Song of Solomon, chapter 2. At rapture of the church, which will take place in the next few years, those leaves in Matthew, chapter 24, have now become green figs, but they're not ripe yet. In the tribulation period, Nahum chapter three verse twelve, Israel now gets her act together, and my, my, my! Look what happens in Nahum chapter three verse twelve. In the context here is the tribulation period, and all thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. There it is. See how thing works. Zedekiah and Jeremiah chapter 24, bad figs, 606 B.C., the first coming of Christ, no figs, barren, Matthew chap- uh, Mark chapter 11, Jesus looks at it and he says, hey, uh, the time's not yet, but he makes a prophecy of the future in 1918, 1948, and then in that point she be put forth her leaves, she becomes a nation, and then Song of Solomon chapter 2 says, at the rapture of the church, they're not ripe yet, but they're green figs, but in the tribulation period in Nahum chapter 3, now we've got the first ripe figs. The second coming of Christ and going into the millennium, Israel now bears the fruit that she was never able to bear in history. We studied this last week. Remember? Remember we talked about the fullness of Israel? The fullness of Israel was what? Like somebody coming back from the dead. And I took you back to Ezekiel chapter 36 and Ezekiel chapter 37. So you have a timeline from Zedekiah, the last king, up through Babylon, up through the first coming. Up through, the, up through the 20th century, to 1918, 1948, up to the rapture, up through the uh, tribulation period, up through the second coming of Christ, into the millennium, all based on isolating Israel as a fig tree. Incredible stuff. And I haven't even cracked the top of it. Now the next one will be the vine tree. And Israel being likened to a vineyard. Remember now, we studied this last Thursday night, didn't we? Somebody asked a question about new wine and old wine, and we talked about it out of Deuteronomy chapter 32, the two types of wine. Grapes in your Bible, grape juice is likened to blood. we got all the connecting pieces. We found out why you shouldn't have fermented wine in the Lord's Supper, why it should be grape juice. Now look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, or just listen to it, whatever you want to do. Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. Here it comes. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. That hill will be Mount Zion over in Jerusalem, by the way, if you want to put a little note in there. And he fenced it and gathered it out of the stones thereof and planted it with a choice vine. Now, verse two will be David going in and wiping out all the rest of the Philistines, and then God cleaning out all the stones, all the rocks, and planted a choice vine. That'll be Israel, and build a tower. We know what that tower is, don't we? That's the tower of David. In the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Ah, see, see, figs, bad figs. Now, this is another way to study Israel as a vineyard. And, of course, the, uh, the, the, it brings forth wild grapes. Now, let me just say this to you before we finish reading this. Israel as a, as a vineyard or as grapes will always be in reference to God's destruction of the world at the second coming of Christ. And you want to remember that. So, you're going to find, we're going to come back to this in a moment, but I wanted to give you that before we read the rest of this. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judea, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God's saying, what else could I have done? You know, I bet He says that about me sometimes. I bet He looks at me and my stupidity and the dumb things that I do, and I bet He says, what more could I do for that boy? I've saved him, I've given him my Holy Spirit of God, I gave him my Bible. Why does He continue to do the stupid things that He does? What more could I do? Of course, the answer is, any more God could do. You know there comes a time that God can't do anymore, you've got to pick it up and do it yourself. I don't know what to tell you. it's the difference between some making it and some not making it. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah judge, I pray you betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked as it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to. And I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. This all took place in 606 B.C. And it will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. And I will command the clouds that they rain no more. Uh, there, there's tribulation period. Now look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. See that thing? Now, Israel as grapes will always be in reference to God's wrath, God's judgment, particularly at the second coming of Christ. Grapes is a picture of blood. Deuteronomy chapter 32 talked about the pure blood of the grape. When you start coming through the Bible, you're going to find out that God has a, uh, something called a wine press of Almighty God. At the second coming of Christ, you know that uh, Revelation chapter uh, 14, verse 18, it talks about God gathering all the grapes and casting those grapes into the winepress of the wrath of God, and then He stomps those grapes. And that takes place down in the Valley of Armageddon. I've told you this before. The Valley of Armageddon uh, is a valley that there have been more battles fought of down in history than other place on the planet. The valley of Armageddon, uh, over there in Revelation chapter 14, where the final battle takes place. The nation of Israel is trapped down in the valley of Armageddon. All the Antichrist guys come around that, some hundred million guys, and are going to wipe out Israel. That valley is about 160 miles around, and it's shaped like a, an oval. And it's about 160 miles around. And it's mountains all the way around that, with one, one pass in and one pass out. And that, that, that down there you get Israel down in the middle and all of the millions of the Antichrist under the devil and finally they're gonna wipe them out what happens God comes back raptures them out they're all stuck down in there and then the picture is the wine press of Almighty God those people being like grapes being thrown into that wine press and God coming down and likened to stamping grapes and sprinkling the blood type of grape juice all over his garments. now he obviously doesn't come down and do that literally but that's the picture of the second coming of Christ. You find it throughout the Old Testament. You find it many, many places throughout the whole Old Testament. Isaiah 63, Revelation 19, 11, Revelation 14, 20, Joel chapter 3, uh, Psalms 83, Psalms 91, Psalms 104, Psalms 1010. Israel is the vineyard, and those grapes get pulled out. The first gleaning grapes get taken out. So you got Israel as a fig tree, you got Israel as a fir tree, you got Israel as a vine tree. And the vine tree will always represent the wrath of God being poured out on this earth and the grape juice being a type of blood. At the end of the Civil War, well, it was probably during the Civil War, but around the end of the Civil War, who knows who Jula Ward Howe is? Anybody know who she is? Who is it, John? No, that was, uh, she didn't write, that was uh, uh, Keys, that were on the Roman Star Mary. John? She wrote the Battle of Him and the Republic. Mm-hmm. Do you ever, you know? And there's a lot of preachers that don't like the Battle of Him and the Republic. They think it's not biblical, especially down south, and that's because south is mad because they got their rear end kicked during the Civil War. <laughs> many guys, many pastors down there still think they're fighting the Civil War. But the bottom line is, it goes to show me how that back then they knew their Bibles in a way that you and I can hardly get to. Did you ever read the words? Of the battle of Him the Republic. And I'm not going to read them all to you. But she starts out saying this. Mine eyes have seen the glory. Of the coming of the Lord. That's the second coming of Christ. For those of you that aren't tuned into it. Mine eyes have seen the glory. Of the coming of the Lord. That is a reference to the second coming of Christ. He is trampling out the vintage. Where the grapes of wrath are stored. That's a reference to those Old Testament passages. When she wrote that given the time that she lived in i guarantee you i'm not saying that they thought that civil war was a battle of the second coming of christ but you talk about the most brutal bloodbath war where in the most primitive sense we lost on both sides hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers from the confederate to the union I mean, in one battle, it was nothing for 80,000 young men to be slain. And it was places where they said that the, the brook and the rivers running through that land where the battle was actually ran red with the blood of those young soldiers. When she saw that and she wrote about the deliverance and the end of that war, she likened it to the second coming of Christ. Whether she knew what she was doing or about it or not, immaterial, it shows that she understood, and they understood back then, The doctrinal input of the Bible. I'd like to see somebody in the government today write a a, a second song about the battle hymn and the even, And most people don't even know what a republic is versus a democracy. They understood that a republic was not something that you get the majority rule. A, A republic was set up based on the principles of the Word of God. And the principles of the Word of God are found throughout that song. And the reason why you find grapes in the Bible when Israel is a vine tree, it'll always be a picture. It'll always be a picture of the wrath of God coming down. Isaiah chapter 17, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 13 talks about Israel as gleaning grapes being gleaned in the last part of the harvest. Revelation chapter 14, verse 18 says, God gathers the clusters of the vine and makes Israel the gleaning grapes before he comes down and throws all the antichrist under that great wine press. So there's another one for you. Now the next tree will be a palm tree. And that'll be Psalm chapter 92, verses 12 through 13. And it says in that passage that the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow up like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age, and they shall be fat and flourishing. Now, when you find a a palm tree, it'll be Israel always in the aspect of the millennial reign of Christ. Wherever you find it. Wherever you find it. Israel as a palm tree will always deal with Israel in the millennium notice the righteous that's Israel shall flourish like a palm tree here it comes he shall grow like a cedar in lebanon those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God that's the millennium and of course this goes back to mark chapter 11 one week before his crucifixion we call it Palm Sunday in our in our in our world today this is where uh, this is where uh, uh, Jesus goes into Jerusalem in what is known as His triumphal entry. And this is where, if you know your Bible in Mark chapter 11, that he tells, his, he, tells his, uh, he tells His disciples to go get Him a colt and an ass. Now the colt was the fool of an ass. The ass being, as we know it, a jackass. And the fool being her colt. And here's another tremendous thing. I, I don't even know how to get into all this today. And you don't get this without putting all four Gospels together. You realize that there's a reason why Jesus told his disciples there's, a, there's an ass and the ass's colt tied up over here. Go bring me both of them. And then when they go get the ass, that's his mother, and the full of the ass, that's the colt, they bring him over to Jesus. When Jesus rides in his triumphant emphrey into Jerusalem, he doesn't ride on the mother ass. He rides on the full of the colt. Now, you read that in your Bible, and you just scratch your head and said, what's the big deal? Some of you might say, well, maybe there's something to that. There is something to it. You know what's to it? Because when you go back to Jeremiah chapter 2, that ass is a picture of the nation of Israel. I haven't even got into the animals that picture Israel yet. We're just dealing with the tree. Oh, I'm not going to today. Breathe easy. Israel's the ass. Israel's the ass. So he says, over there tied up is an ass, and it's cold. Bring me both of them, and then he rides on the ass's colt and not the ass. Anybody want to know why? I'll tell you why. Because the ass, pictures Israel, was unrideable. So he rides on the full of the ass, the colt, which is the picture of you and me. Because we're going to move into the church age. And the ass who represents Israel was unridable. He'd been trying to ride that ass for the last 3,000 years, and it's unrideable. So he said, bring them both, but I'm going to ride on the ass of the colt. And you know what? The bottom line is simply this. The colt came out of the ass. She's part of it, but it's his own identity. You and I as the church, we come out of Israel. We're part of her, but we're own identity. Oh, you get into Israel as animals. Man, you're, you're, you're going on forever. Go on forever. But that's why that takes place. And that's why when he walks down there, when he goes into Jerusalem, what do they cry? Hosanna! 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 What's Hosanna mean? Somebody raise your hand and tell me. What does Hosanna mean? Anybody know? What does it mean? What? Save Save us now. Save us now. That's exactly right. Save us now. You know why? Because the Jews understood that the Christ going into Jerusalem on the fold of an ass fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy out of Jeremiah and they knew and they say and the kingdom of David is coming. In John they say the kingdom of of heaven is coming. And they know. And so what do they do? What do they do? They go out and they cut off pine boughs. I mean, excuse me, uh, palm tree leaves. Palm tree boughs. And they line the road with palm trees. Why? Because it represents the millennial reign of Christ. So whenever you find Whenever you find palm trees in your Bible, it's going to be Israel in that sense. Now, there's another tree in here. I'm just going to give you this so we don't have to get confusing on it, and that is the cedar tree. Now, I just throw this out to keep it clean for you so you can... uh, Cedar tree is not one of the ways that Israel is identified. A cedar tree, cedar wood in the Bible, will always represent the house of God. That's the wood that was used to make the temple. And we talk about the cedars of Lebanon And that was what they used in building that temple. So you want to remember that. And of course the Bible says in Mark chapter 11 that they spread their garments in the way and others cut down branches off the trees. John 12, 13 tells you their palm branches and strawed them in the way. And they went before and they followed, cried, Hosanna, save us now. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna the highest. And of course, in John chapter 12, verse 13, he's called the king of Israel. Millennium. Now we come to back to Romans, the last tree. Olive tree. Wow, well, I'll tell you what. Israel is likened to the branches on an olive tree. The olive tree in the Bible will always represent eternal life. And I can go one step further and tell you the olive tree in the Bible will always represents the tree of life. We're going back to Judges chapter 9 and Ezekiel chapter 31, there's the great key to the olive tree. Four trees in the garden mentioned specifically at the time of the Adam and Eve, and then four trees uh, mentioned specifically in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're the same four trees. And boy, the definition of those trees are quite incredible. Now, olive, olive trees in the Bible always represent, uh, always represent Christ in the eternal life sense. Exodus, and that's what you're finding over here in Romans chapter 11. We're going to talk about it. Exodus chapter 30, verse 24 in the Old Testament, olive oil is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 11, the light of the lamps in the tabernacle was lit with olive oil. Picture of the Holy Spirit of God. When they wanted to anoint a king in the Old Testament, what did they do? They went and got a vial of oil, olive oil, and, uh, and uh, put it on his head. Picture of him being anointed by the Holy Spirit of God to do the job. Uh, and of course, when you go back to Romans chapter uh, uh, Romans chapter uh, uh, eleven back here, it it says this: For if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy; and if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and that with them uh, partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Uh, uh, thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest how he also spare you. Now I'm going to tell you something here. We're going to kind of walk through this and get you to break this down in Romans. This has been a great example of an isolated study on the nation of Israel's trees. We could do it with animals. We don't have time today. But here's what he's saying. Olive oil in your Bible will be a type of the Holy Spirit of God. You ever notice this? There's two things that you go out and buy. When you go to a store to buy olive oil, you can go buy olive oil. And then what's the next kind of olive oil you can buy? A virgin. What is it? A virgin. Now, why would olive oil be connected with a virgin? Because once you got saved as the church, you're a Christ virgin. Let me just ask you this, and this is just me. What is the second commodity you go out and buy today that is connected with the word virgin? How about wool? Virgin wool? And where does wool come from? Sheep. A who? Sheep. A sheep? Like Christ dying on the cross, giving up His wool? Him dying for you? How come the two things that you go out and buy in a grocery store that have connected with God, one in His Holy Spirit, the other one is His death, both have the word virgin connected with it? I'll tell you why. It's a picture of the church. That olive oil in the Bible, as an olive tree, will always be a picture of eternal life. He says in verse 16, He says, For if the first fruit, that'll be Israel, be holy, the lump is also holy. If the root be holy, so are the branches. All right. here's what He's saying. The first fruits uh, will be Israel in the Old Testament sense. The The root will be God Himself. This tree has its roots in God. And God is holy. The lump will be all the aspects of this tree that are, that are the branches and the branches grafted in. And they'll be holy too. Verse 16 and 17 says that this branch, when he comes down through here, this branch is the nation of Israel. This root grows into an olive tree. And this olive tree, which is Christ, which comes from God, the root, becomes, puts out branches. And those branches are called natural branches in verse 21. You know what you got a picture of? you got a picture of God being the root. And from that root comes the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation for you and for me and the nation of Israel. From that tree comes out the branches. They're called natural branches. Those natural branches are the nation of Israel. Then what happens? Christ is the olive tree. Some of those branches got broken off. How did they get broken off? They get broken off in verse 17 by coming to the point where they disobeyed God. They they turned their back on God. In 606 B.C., they didn't bear fruit with God. So what did God do? He comes on and He breaks off some, 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 not all, some. Why not all? Because God has a remnant. And He breaks off some of those natural branches. One of the greatest studies you'll ever take in your life is to study Christ as the olive tree. In my mind, there's no question about it. Once you be in the Bible for a while and you learn the things in the Bible and the way the Bible lays out, there are certain things that are there that maybe it doesn't say they're there, and I may not teach them out publicly, but for me, in my mind, in my heart, I mean, it's, there's no question about it. And I'll tell you right now, if you want to know what the, and somebody said, well, Adam and Eve ate an apple. They didn't eat an apple in any way, shape, or form. That tree that they took off is very clearly defined in the Bible. Somebody says, what was, the, what was the tree of life? What was the tree of life? Well, let me tell you something. <coughs> After all we've been through, if you don't figure out the tree of life had to be an olive tree, you better be careful crossing the street. That tree of life was an olive tree. When you have the first Adam down there in the garden, what happened? He's in a garden. He's in a garden. And he's in a garden, and he's tempted in a garden. And when he's tempted in a garden, he fails in that garden. And the second Adam is in the same garden in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in, it's, know what that, that, garden, know where he's at? He's in the Mount of what? Olives. That's where the, that's where the, that's where the temple will be built. That's where the Eastern Gate is. It's right to the east side where you go in. He's on the Mount of Olives. And he's in, what, where does he have his great temptation? Where is, what's it called? What is it? We say it real loud. Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Where he prayed through his temptation. Where he prayed through his his desire not to go to the cross. In Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives. Somebody please tell me what Gethsemane means. Olive press. It's where he was pressed by the weight of the decision Let me ask you a question. When you take a grape and put it in a grape press and screw it down and it squirts out, what does it squirt out? Grape juice. When you take an olive and you put it in an olive press and you screw it down, what comes out of the olive when it finally pops? Olive oil. In Gethsemane, the olive press on the Mount of Olives, outside the temple, where the first Adam failed in that garden. The second Adam prayed through in the garden. He was in the olive press. The olive press pressed him. And when he popped on Calvary's cross. You know what came out? Olive oil. Holy Spirit of God. Church age. You can't beat the book. You can't beat it. You can't beat it. Where the first Adam was denied the tree of life because of his unbelief. And his failure in the garden, the second Adam, was faced with the same temptations and prayed through in the garden, and where the first Adam was denied the tree of life, the second Adam became the tree of life that you and I could get back in. Why do you think in Titus chapter 2 or 3, and verse 5, it's called about washing of washing of regeneration? Why is it regeneration? Why is it not just get generated? Why is it say when you get saved, you get regenerated? I'll tell you why. Because we had it once in Adam, and we lost it in Adam, and then we get it back in Christ at the olive press. Oh, man. Now, those kind of things are why I love the Bible. I can't speak for you. but Man, you give me that stuff, and I'll take the rest of my life going through that thing. And then the Bible says because he was the olive press. Because the the natural branches got broken off. The Bible says a wild olive tree. A wild olive branch got grafted in. That's you and me. Where the natural branches got broken off, that's Israel. Where the wild olive tree gets grafted in, that's you and me. We were once part of the olive tree in Adam. But we went wild. You can get on TV and watch all these smutty movies on there and on the commercials they'll say, buy this video. Girls Gone Wild. Co-ed's Gone Wild. They had to put one on Olive Tree Gone Wild. That's us. That's the mess we're in. And God took us and he grafted us into Christ. Then look what happens. Verse 17, And if some of the branches were broken off, and thou, you and me, Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakers of the root, God, and the fatness of the olive tree. That's all the blessings you have in Christ Jesus. Now I know we ought to keep our spiritual, uh, keep our physical bodies under control, and I know that we only have one body to serve God with, And we ought to try to keep it in some kind of shape. I understand all that. But as far as your spiritual relationship should be with God this morning, your inside person, your soul ought to be 6,000 pounds. You ought to be basking in the fatness of the Holy Spirit of God. You ought to be basking and enjoying all the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit of God. It ought to be just a thing. When you got grafted in, you just didn't get grafted in and stick there. You got grafted in to the root, God. And you got the fatness of the olive tree. Now, if that olive tree is God's son, and the root is God, then that simply means that when you got saved, when you got grafted in, when I got grafted in, whatever God has, you and I have. Then why are we living in defeat today? Why do we struggle with the issues? Why is it so hard to do what's right? Why is it so hard to keep our focus? You're part of the root. You should be enjoying the fatness of the olive tree. Regenerated. Now look at verse 18. Boast not thyself against the branches, but if thou boast thou uh, bearest not the root, but to the root thee. That's kind of a confusing little phrase there, but let me explain it to you. He's saying, in other words, you can't be part of the olive tree, truly part of the olive tree, and take a different position than God does on the nation of Israel. That's what he's saying. That old English phrase, to root thee, we talk about rooting somebody out. Somebody says, well, there's, a, there's somebody in this group that uh, is a bad apple. We're going to root them out. You got your drain all plugged up, who do you call Roto-rooter. He gets down in your, your sewer system and he roots it out. And that's exactly what he's talking about. Rooting somebody out. You'll know who people really are when you understand their position on the nation of Israel. And that's what he's talking about. He says in verse 19 and 20. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith, be not high-minded, but fear. Now that's a great great verse. In other words, he's saying this. You better get it straight. Yes, God broke off some of the natural branches for unbelief. Yes, He did. And yes, we Gentiles got in through their uh, fall, but don't get high-minded about it, because God's not done with the nation of Israel. And he says, be not high-minded, but fear. Now, this is not my message today, but I like to throw a lot of little things out, and I've thrown so many other little things out, I'll just throw this one out. One of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Bible, one of the greatest studies you'll ever take in the Bible is to make a catalog for yourself of the warnings in the Bible for you and for me. I don't know how anybody missed it. I could take you through the Bible, and I could show you a warning in the beginning of the Bible, and a warning in the middle of the Bible, and a warning in the end of the Bible, where God warns against anybody changing one word in that book. And yet, people missed that warning. They missed that warning. I could take you over to the book of Revelation and show you where you were warned that no man steals the crown that God has for you with the judgment seat of Christ. And you know what? Yet, some people will let somebody steal that crown. Ignore that warning. And here we have a warning against the nation of Israel. In the Bible, there's warning against uh, uh, forgetting God. There's warning against not being, uh, having a forgiving spirit. There's warnings against having a judgmental attitude. And of course, all of this stuff comes back to the point that warnings in the Bible are there to be heeded. And here he's talking about Israel when he says, be, "Yeah, you got in because they fell, and God broke off some of the branches. But because, but don't get high-minded, but fear because God is not finished with them." Then verse twenty-one. And to me, this is one of the most negative passages anywhere in the Bible. And the Bibles filled with negative passages. He says in verse 21, For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed. Another warning. Another warning. Take heed, lest he also spare thee not. Now you better mark that little take heed in red, yellow, purple, blue, and chartreuse and everything else and put blinking lights on it. In fact, you'd do well to mark every take heed in the Bible because there lies usually one of the warnings. But this is not only about our position on Israel, but it's about our relationship with Christ. Did you ever stop and think of this? You ever stop and think that Israel goes through the tribulation period in a physical sense because of their leaving God and going after and doing their own thing? And we talk about the tribulation as a seven-year period that Israel is going to go through to come back with God. And sometimes I think we forget that God is like the Son of God, and you and I are called the Son of God. You realize that many of God's people go through their own tribulation period on this earth because they don't do what's right with God? You realize the parallels are so clear? that just as Israel's going through a tribulation period because they disobeyed God, that God's people, you and me, will go through a tribulation period, time in our own life, where things won't go right, every problem in the world happens, and maybe you go through life and everything does happen, but when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, it's all going to come crashing down. You realize that there are some people are in the nation of Israel, when God looks at Israel right now, He sees them dead. They're so far out of fellowship with God that God equates them to being dead, but they're dead temporarily, aren't they? You know why? Because he's going to resurrect them down here and restore them. You realize he's told you over and over again in the Bible that there's some of God's people that will get so far out in left field and get so far out of touch with God that God come down and take them home and they're dead too, temporarily, till they get resurrected? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You know, I, in my ministry, and I even hesitate to say this, in my ministry, which almost spans 40 years now. I know of three people in those 40 years' times who I believe with everything within me that God killed them. I say that fully knowing that I don't know the circumstances within their heart. I understand that. I'm going based off the principle. I'll put the two over here. I know one, one situation where this person was the worst enemy of the Word of God I have ever met in my life that this whole person's one job, all day life, was to discredit the Bible, discredit anybody who believed the Bible. This person took enjoyment and, 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 and great luxury in coming to the point where uh, anybody who believed the Bible is the Word of God, they took great, uh, great enjoyment in, destruct, in destroying them, and laughing at them, and making fun of them, <coughs> and I got to tell you, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 18 says, whoso despises the Word shall be destroyed. When I look at something like that <clears throat> or I see people, God's people, whether I'm right in it or not, when I see people, God's people, who have come to the place that God's hand looks like it's come down and taken them out because God had a purpose for them and he decided not to do that, maybe God gave them two or three wake-up calls, and he just blew right by it. At some point, God says I've had enough. When I see that, and, I have to, and I've preached one of the funerals of that. And I never, never said a word. I never, I never, and and, and, and I have never spoken about this with anybody. And I would never give anybody the particulars, because there's something that God showed me. But I want you to know this: when I see that, when I understand what God does, and I understand the hand of God and the chastisement of God, and the truth we know, we all ought to be dead today. <clears throat> but the bottom line is, in some cases, God has enough, and God comes down and He says, "It's the greatest warning in the Bible." He said, "Hey, look." If I don't spare Israel, what makes you think I'm going to spare you? When I saw those things in my life, one in particular, the Holy Spirit of God brought me back and reminded me of things that I've seen over the years. I'm not someone that stands there and says, "Well, they got what they deserved, didn't they?" I'm not someone who says, "Well, praise the Lord. God God did what he had to do. Praise the Lord." That's not me, brother. When I see that, and I even suspect that, and I even feel that, it puts a fear in me, brother. I don't feel good about it because I know that I'm just a half a step away from being in that same boat. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that last verse there to you and me as the church is probably one of the most solemn things anywhere in the Bible to you and me. If God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest He also spare not thee. I've seen every scenario in this world, brother, in 40 years. I've seen parents come in, and 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 who were saved, and 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 try to get you know their, their, their boys and their girls weren't saved, and uh, they want to get them right, and the kids don't want to necessarily get right. And mom and dad come in and they go for a little while, and then they punch out, bail out, go someplace else, and they and they think, well, you know what? They don't keep up with it. The kids don't think of it, and they think, well, I'm saved. But the bottom line is, their kids aren't saved, and they go through a false security all their life, and then the devil sneaks in the back door and someday because mom and dad couldn't hold the line and do what they need to do. Those kids die, go to hell. I've seen it all. I have seen it all. That warning is one of the most solemn warnings anywhere in the Bible. If God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare thee not. The absolute insanity of getting saved and then going back to the world. The absolute insanity of taking the free gift of God. I know to you and me it's no big deal. We take it, we get a better deal, and off we go. But let me tell you something. It's a big deal to Him. It would be a lot like you. It would be a lot like you having a child. And your child, <clears throat> you had a dear friend who had a child. <clears throat> and that child had kidney failure. And you were, you were impressed to give one of your child's kidneys to that child because you were so close to that family. And you said to that, that mother, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give my, one of my girls, uh, it that'll be a perfect match. And the doctor went in and took that kidney and put it in that other little kid's kidney. How would you feel how would you feel that person you gave that kidney to how would you feel that person that you took out of your own daughter and put that kidney in there so their kid was there because their kid was going to die without a kidney how would you feel that come person come back and and slandered you got mad at you and said everything about you there was to say and reject and wouldn't have anything to do with you wouldn't you feel foolish wouldn't you be angry Wouldn't you feel like an absolute fool that you put your own daughter's life in jeopardy that took out that kidney to put it in somebody else and now the person you gave it to wants nothing to do with you and will not even speak to you and all the things they do say about you are terrible things. Well, let me tell you something. When he died on the cross, God took his son and put him in your place. He basically took his kidney, his heart, and wanted to put a heart transplant in you. You take that heart and then you talk about him the way you do? You take that heart and you use his name in vain. You take that heart and you take it back out in the world and everything that you do. My warning is this, and I'm finished. If God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare thee not. One of the greatest warnings in the Bible. Remember, there's a physical damnation and there's a spiritual damnation. There's a physical condemnation and there's a spiritual condemnation. One of them deals with your soul and the other one deals with your body. And I'm telling you. When I see God come down and hammer somebody or drop the hammer, it, doesn't, it, it, it isn't enough. It, it, the Bible makes it very clear. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. I don't look at somebody, following somebody and say they got what they deserve. No, no. Let me tell you something, brother. God knows my heart. If I got what I deserved, I wouldn't even be standing here. Neither would you. It's not done where you can, you can enjoy it. It's not done where you can say, well, they got there. It's done so you'll fear and realize that you're only a half a step away from that. And that's what he's talking about, greatest warning in the Bible. Well, there's the, there's the concept of Israel. There's an isolated study and a great example of it. You've got enough information there. You can go on and break that thing down and do that thing, whatever you need to do to. But it's an incredible uh, layout. And as we're dismissed this morning, for those of you that want to get part of that uh, Bible study thing that was here last Thursday night and we talked about how we were going to do it, Danny will be right up here. Come up and get him and we'll get it all divided up and then I'll help you Uh, Thursday night I'll have my information and I'll find out who's doing what and I'll give you all that stuff and I'll let you know how our our lunch goes uh, this week at uh, Wednesday and we'll go from there. Let's pray.